After defeating the last kingdoms of both North and South dynasties, the Sui dynasty united the whole of China and brought to an end two centuries of civil wars and social turmoil. Dunhuang, a major hub on the ancient Silk Road, also ushered in a period of prosperity. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Why We Love Dunhuang podcast. Before we enter the most splendid age of Dunhuang, let me remind you, if you love this podcast, do please remember to give us a five-star rating, leave a comment, or share with your friends so that more people can enjoy these stories of Dunhuang and its magnificent art treasures. In our previous episodes, we visited some classic Dunhuang Mogao grottos built in the early period. Starting from this episode, we will enter the middle period, which is also the golden period in the history of Dunhuang's cave construction. And it starts with the Sui dynasty, which only existed for 37 years, from AD 581 to 618. The Sui dynasty's founding emperor, known as Sui Wendi, or by his personal name, Yang Qian, had a special connection with Buddhism. He is believed to have been raised by a nun in a monastery until the age of 12. Yang Qian's father was a high-ranking general of the previous kingdom, Legend had it that when Yang Chen's mother gave birth to him in a monastery, the baby had horn-like bumps on its head and there had been some ominous blue lightning in the night sky. She was scared by this ugly-looking baby and the bad luck signs and so, fearful of the supernatural, the mother did not want to raise the baby by herself and abandoned him. A nun in the monastery stepped in and for 12 years looked after the little boy who would, in time, become the first emperor of the Sui dynasty. Yang Cheng spent a lonely childhood in the monastery but it made him tough and eager for success. After having taken control of the military power, he established his own kingdom and later united the whole of China. Because of his early encounter with and gratitude for Buddhism, he instantly abolished the former monarch's policy of persecuting Buddhists across the country and thus made Buddhism flourish again. Another enduring legacy of the short Sui dynasty was that after having unified northern and southern China, it built a grand canal about 2,700 kilometers long to connect the two parts. The Grand Canal greatly accelerated logistic and commercial exchanges within China. Part of that Grand Canal is still being used for waterway transportation today. It was, for any age, an amazing achievement. With the thriving of Buddhism and increasing convenience of transportation, cave construction and cultural exchanges in Dunhuang also accelerated. During the 37 years of the Sui dynasty, there were over 100 caves constructed in Dunhuang, which tripled the number of caves produced in the 200 years of the previous northern dynasties. Caves built during this period showed different characteristics from those that had been seen in the earlier years. 
One typical example is Cave 420. It is a square assembly hall with a truncated pyramid ceiling. Each of the north, west and south walls has a niche, so it's also known as the three-niche cave. The main niche on the west wall is a double recessed one with a square bottom and an arch top. This new construction form is a niche within a niche. It can house more statues in the niche without giving the impression of overcrowding, which also allows for more ornamentation on the niche lintels. This niche houses a seven-figure group, a seated Buddha, two disciples and four bodhisattvas. The Buddha is sitting in a meditation pose with his right hand in the dispelling fear gesture and left hand in the charity gesture. He looks calm and compassionate. His head, torso and limbs are well-rounded and stout. The bodhisattvas are demure and feminine. Although they have moustaches and are dressed in male form, they still look like gentle ladies with a motherly smile. The Sui dynasty artists started paying more attention to the curves of the human body and the details on the textiles. For example, you can find some round patterns on the dhoti of the bodhisattvas. Dhoti is a kind of loose pants traditionally worn by Hindu men. The round patterns are large, pearl-bordered medallions enclosing pig heads, lions, winged tigers, flying horses and even complicated hunting scenes. All of those patterns reflect strong influences from Central Asia. Here is a vivid example of how foreign art was mixed with local art in Dunhuang. If you take a close look at the patterns, you can find a warrior riding an elephant, followed by a ferocious tiger. Such an image is quite common in the costumes of Central Asian figures and Persian silverwares. However, the only difference is, the weapon used by the warrior on the elephant is a Chinese sword. Actually, before the Sui dynasty, Chinese monarchs had sent envoys to Persia for friendly diplomatic relationships. Later, the Persian king also sent envoys to the Sui dynasty. Persian coins have been discovered in many places in China, which indicates commercial exchange between the East and the West were popular at the time. And back to Cave 420. The space on the four slopes of the ceiling is densely filled with mural depictions of the Lotus Sutra, the most influential Buddhist text. Here we can find one of the most famous bodhisattvas, not only in Buddhism, but also in Chinese local culture. The bodhisattva has a very popular Chinese name, Guan Yin, which embodies the compassion of all Buddhas. Belief in Guan Yin is quite popular in China. When ordinary Chinese suffered from difficulties, they would quite often pray for help from Guan Yin, instead of from the Buddha. Interestingly, in Chinese myth, Guan Yin is often portrayed as a female goddess who can save people from their sufferings. The murals of Cave 420 show how this saviour rescues people in peril and appears in countless forms to help suffering beings. The different kinds of perils depicted also highlight the real dangers travellers might encounter on the ancient Silk Road. 
For example, on the east slope you can find scenes of businessmen praying to Guanyin for a safe journey before setting out. Then the caravan starts off with a group of camels and donkeys carrying goods across the mountains. On top of the mountain, two camels stumble and fall off the cliff, and two footmen look down the valley, looking very frightened. A one-legged man is going down the mountain, pulling the donkey's tail with both hands. The picture continues. After the caravan descends into the valley, they take a rest on a piece of grassland by a stream. The porter unloads the goods from the camel's back and the cattle are drinking water or resting on the ground. A man is on guard on the hillside. Suddenly, a group of robbers rush forward on horseback. People from the caravan take up arms and fight with the robbers. But they are too weak and are quickly captured. At this critical moment, people pray to Guanyin for help. In a miracle, the deity appeared. At the end of the picture, the group of robbers put down their weapons and are lined up in a neat line with their hands folded, which means they've converted to Buddhism. The whole story is exquisitely and vividly depicted. It has become a common theme of Dunhuang frescoes painted in the Sui dynasty. The reason is simple to discover. Everyone wants a safe journey, as more and more caravans come to Dunhuang to do business across the desert. In order to pray for a safe journey, many people began to believe in Buddhism. Their wish to be protected by Guan Yin and to turn bad luck into good was expressed through the Dunhuang frescoes. The short-lived Sui dynasty paved the way for a united and stronger China. The Sui was followed by the Tang dynasty, which made China one of the richest and most powerful countries in the world at that time. Nowadays, people often use Sui Tang to describe the whole period. From the Sui dynasty onwards, the Chinese fully absorbed Buddhism and started to create Buddhist art in typical Chinese style. Dunhuang's cave art reached its peak in the Tang dynasty, which we shall see as we continue the stories of Dunhuang, the largest Buddhist art gallery in the world. Special thanks go out to the Dunhuang Academy in Sanyang Zhongdu for contributing to the content of this podcast. If you like the show, do give us a five-star rating or a review. I'm Graham Stevens. See you next time on the Why We Love Dunhuang podcast. In this episode of the Why We Love Dunhuang podcast, a Grand Canal about 2,700 kilometers long was mentioned. 
it greatly accelerated logistic and commercial exchanges within China. Part of that Grand Canal is still being used for waterway transportation today. Now let's check what is the story behind this amazing achievement in our podcast, A Thousand Wise, tailor-made for curious minds about China and the Chinese culture. Hi, this is Huang Rei. Welcome to another episode of A Thousand Wise. Over 80% of goods in global trade are transported by water. If you live in Europe, the petrol you fill your tank with probably arrived over the Suez Canal. And if you're a farmer in the U.S., the soybeans and corn you grow might need to travel through the Panama Canal to reach consumers in Asia. Both canals, in many aspects, are dwarfed by the world's longest canal built by the Chinese people. It's called, simply and without any undue modesty, the Grand Canal. And it connects the two longest rivers in China. The modern-day Grand Canal runs from Hangzhou to Beijing, spanning a total length of 1,794 kilometers which is around nine times the length of the Suez Canal and more than 20 times the length of the Panama Canal. The Grand Canal is also one of the oldest canals in the world, with one of the earliest sections dating back to the 5th century BC. But the construction that gave the canal its phenomenal scale was undertaken during the 7th century, under the rule of one of China's most infamous emperors, Sui Yangdi, or Emperor Yang of Sui. Now the first question you might have is, why build such an incredibly long canal? The answer to this is twofold. First in geographic terms, China is mountainous in the northwest and flattens as you travel southeast. So almost all the rivers in China flow east towards the sea. The second reason is because Chinese people for centuries have needed a means to connect its political center in the north and its economic center in the southeast. Some of the popular ancient colloquialism give a good example of this. For instance, in the olden days, people used to say a good harvest in Suzhou and Changzhou provides food for the entire nation. And yarn from Weitang will never be used up. Cloth from Songjiang will never be sold out. However, these prosperous regions were a thousand or so kilometers from the ancient capitals of Chang'an, Luoyang, and Beijing. And because there was no naturally occurring waterway that ran north to south, the question of logistics was an extremely difficult one. So, being an ambitious emperor determined to earn a good reputation in history, Sui Yangdi decided to solve the problem of transporting produce from the country's breadbasket, or perhaps rice bowl is more appropriate in this case, to the country's political centers and front lines in the north. To our modern minds, this would seem to make perfect sense especially since the conventional solution to a slowing economy is government spending and infrastructure building. Unfortunately though, 
things didn't work like that in ancient China. But let's hear the good news first. And that is, the construction work was finished extremely quickly. The first major section of the canal was constructed in 605, the first year of Suiyangdi's reign. This section connected the Yellow River with the Huai River and ran 1,000 kilometers southeast from the Sui dynasty capital, Luoyang, to the city of Huai'an, passing through the central and eastern provinces of Henan, Anhui, and Jiangsu. Amazingly, it only took five months to complete, with a workforce of over a million. The second major section was constructed in 608 and ran almost 900 kilometers northeast from the central Chinese city of Luoyang to modern-day Beijing. It was completed within the year, harnessing another workforce of over a million. At the same time, Suiyangdi also ordered the reconstruction and widening of the canals, connecting the Huai River to the Yangtze. So when all the work was finally completed in 610, Suiyangdi had created a man-made river 2,700 kilometers long, almost twice the length of the modern-day canal. Now the bad news. Suiyangdi's massive infrastructure project, unfortunately, did not result in the creation of millions of jobs. Instead, it resulted in hundreds of millions of unhappy people. Why? Well, you'd be unhappy too if you had to leave behind your land and family to take up harsh physical labor all year round. And Suiyangdi seemed to have a great love for building projects. According to historical records, in the decade or so of his reign, Suiyangdi conscripted at least 10 million people for his various projects, so that the nation's back was broken by conscripted labor. That, along with years of war and peasant revolts, brought an abrupt end to the short-lived Sui dynasty, lasting for merely 37 years. In fact, such was his unpopularity that almost a thousand years later, writers still spun fictitious tales about him. In one such tale, Suiyangdi saw a very beautiful flower in his dream, but he did not know its name or where it grew. So he painted a picture of the flower and ordered his courtiers to look for it. After searching far and wide, they finally found the flower in Yangzhou and learned that it was called the Jade Flower, or Qionghua. To accommodate his travel to Yangzhou to see the flower of his dreams, Suiyangdi shamelessly spent taxpayer money and extorted human labor to build the Grand Canal. Yet such was the divine wrath that when he got there, all of the jade flowers in Yangzhou had withered, only to blossom again the following year after he had gone. So the story goes anyway. Though, no doubt, the writers were not outraged enough to refuse the benefits brought to them by the Grand Canal. Before the advent of modern maritime road and rail transport, 
75% of all goods in China were transported on the Great Canal. Even today, it plays an important role in bringing water from the lower branches of the Yangtze to water-scarce areas in northern China. Modern-day historians often say that Sui Yangdi is one of the most misrepresented emperors in Chinese history because his achievements are enough to put him among the greatest, and yet he's painted with the brush of infamy because of his blindness to the needs of the people. In words made famous by the emperor who overthrew his dynasty, the people are like water. They can raise a vessel and also drown it. And water was indeed one of the downfalls of Sui Yangdi. Thank you for joining us at A Thousand Wise. We hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.